You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. I am so honored to introduce to you two amazing business leaders, Payumi Samaratanga and Hubert Jolie. Hubert is a former CEO and chairman of Best Buy, Harvard Business School professor, and author of The Heart of Business. And Payumi is a partner at the law firm Constant G. And here's a fun fact. Payumi had to go to law school for a third time after she learned her legal credentials in Sri Lanka and Cambridge University in England were not transferable to Minnesota. And now, Piyumi is widely sought by corporate clients and top employment immigration law firms alike. In this episode, Shana connected with these two business leaders to talk about the importance of diverse and inclusive teams, the dangers of tokenism, and the power of leading with purpose. Enjoy the show. I'm so happy uh, to have you, Piyumi, and you, Hubert, on the Conversations with Shonda podcast that we offer here at the Minneapolis Foundation. So welcome. So glad to have you both. As we jump in, I'm just going to start with you, Piyumi, and ask if you wouldn't mind just providing an introduction uh, to yourself, what you want the audience to to know about you, and then Hubert will follow up with you. Thank you. Shonda and Obia for this amazing opportunity. Delighted as always to be in a conversation with both of you, incredible thought leaders in this and larger spaces. First and foremost, I think of myself as a mother of uh, three wonderful kids, a wife and a daughter and an immigrant to this country who believes in what this amazing country has to offer. But like in everything in life, perfection is a journey and not a destination. That is what I hope we will get to talk about today in terms of diversity and inclusion. My day job, as it were, is being an attorney running the Minneapolis office for a national law firm that really at its core and its founding DNA has Uh, diversity and inclusion etched into it. 75 years ago, we were founded in the Deep South by three founding members, one of whom was a woman. The notion of a woman simply being an attorney in an Atlanta-based organization 75 years ago would have been an accomplishment. But in addition to be a woman who was a founding member goes to show our kind of commitment, founding commitment to diversity and inclusion. We are also the only uh, law firm on a national landscape that has a named partner who's a minority. Thank you so much, Piyumi. And Hubert. Well, Shanda and Piyumi, what a delight. I so look forward to our conversation and eager to to have this dialogue. In terms of an introduction, I am a a grandfather of three amazing uh, young uh, granddaughters ages one to uh, one year old to two and a half year old, which of course gives me a sense of responsibility for the, for the future, right? What kind of world 
uh, we're going to live for leave for these amazing uh, granddaughters. Uh, I have uh, been in business for in my, my entire life, but my journey has been one of uh, the transformation from somebody who grew up as a uh, hard-charging, uh, deeply analytical, performance-oriented uh, McKinsey consultant to somebody who believes now in human magic. And I can say I didn't smoke anything illegal along the way. <laughs> I've, I've had the privilege of uh, spending uh, you know, a dozen amazing years in uh, the Twin Cities, leading two uh, great uh, Minnesota companies, Calcium companies, and then being part of the um, delightfully surprising resurgence of, uh, of Best Buy. I've now studied a, uh, a next chapter in my life. I, uh, I really focused on adding my voice and my energy to what I believe is the urgent and necessary refoundation of, of business and capitalism around purpose and humanity with a sense that uh, in this world, we need to make a declaration of interdependence. Business can be a force for good and business cannot succeed in isolation, right? It's, uh, we're part of a community when, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, when uh, if the community is on fire, you cannot open the stores. It's as simple as this, right? You cannot run a business. And similarly, if the planet is on fire, you don't have a business. And so we need to make this declaration of interdependence and, and act uh, for this refoundation. So the way I do it, I, you know, I do a number of things these days. I, uh, I wrote a book. I published a book uh, this year, The Heart of Business, which I'm very excited about. I'm now teaching at Harvard Business School, both in the MBA program and in executive education with a focus on helping leaders put purpose to work and unleash human magic. And then with my amazing wife, Hortense Legenti, I coach and mentor a number of CEOs and, and executives. So it's really you know, trying to find meaning and uh, provide impact and joy uh, in this next chapter of my life. Man, fantastic. There's so much goodness just in the introduction. Um, and you know, I'm thinking about uh, how Piumi sort of talked about the law firm, right? Founded by women, yet the only one right now that has a named minority, how did you say, Pumi? A named partner. So A named yeah. partner, right? So I met Don, he's amazing. And um, so here it was, it was founded by a woman and now it remains the only one with a person of color, with a minority name. It feels like we started out strong and then somehow didn't do a lot somewhere in the middle. Pumi, how do you reconcile like those two things or what, what do you want people to understand about the importance of having him be the name partner? Is there any level of concern that we don't have more? Like, how do you reconcile those two things? Absolutely. And and Uber is, you know, exhibit A for, for a spokesperson for this cause, if if for lack of a better term, right? I think we've often, the three of us have talked about the pyramid model. We've done amazingly well at the bottom layer of the pyramid in terms of opening the floodgates, as it were, to women and minorities. So you know, 20 or almost 30 years after we have seen a critical mass of women going into the professions, law schools, medical schools, uh, accounting profession, we've got built up an amazing pipeline of entry level to meet middle level managers. It is the C-suites, it is the 
decision-making places at the top of the pyramid, as it were, that we need to now focus on. And, and Ube is an amazing spokesperson having done this himself and seeing the value of it, right? We've got to have a bottom up and a top down model, what we call the sandwich model, right? And hopefully you will meet somewhere in the middle. There is a place for everyone. We've talked about this before. The inclusion of one group is never to the inclusion of the other, exclusion of the other. When I advocate for my two daughters to be able to do everything, if or anything they said their mind to, if that comes at the cost of my son being able to do that, all we've done is swapped one group for another, right? And, and I think Uber makes the perfect case in point that there is a place for everyone, but that simply making the pie bigger makes us stronger not weaker. Same with law firms, right? Having a named partner who is a minority, in our case, darn profit, um, you know, didn't eliminate the role for white men or women. So, you know, we are better and stronger together, something I know, Ube, you and Shonda, you have been great advocates for. And Hubert, as you're, as you're listening, I want to hear more about how you've been great on this issue. I know you have been, but I would love for our listeners to hear that. And then you talk about your granddaughters and making the world better for them. And I think you mean that literally in terms of climate, but I think, I imagine you also mean it in terms of if they want to seat on a corporate board, they would be valued the same way, considered the same way. Their expertise would be seen as equal to everyone else around the table. Can you uh, offer anything more around around this topic? Or I'd love to hear what you have to say. No, of course, and and you know both of you are very kind. It's it's not about me being great or not because that's a narrow focus, <laughs> but it's about the the topic. And I think we have to say it out loud. It's it, uh, diversity is a business imperative. How stupid would it be for companies to just recruit from one quarter of the population, people who look like me? <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be crazy. Businesses need to represent the customers they serve in the communities that they operate in. It's as simple as this. If you don't, then you're gonna miss. And it's, the, the business consequences are, are enormous. Let's take a, a, a couple of very concrete examples that I admitted the Hubson, the, the, the fabulous CEO of AO Investment and star, uh, the chairman of, uh, of uh, Starbucks now as well. You know, she told me, and I didn't know this, right? If you go to the restroom in a hotel, there's a, uh, an infrared activated soap dispenser in the bathroom. Well, infrared technology, I had this confirmed by the top engineers at Intel, doesn't do a good job of detecting black as a color. So if you go into the bathroom and you have very dark skin, chances are you're not going to be able to get soap. Now, if in the hotel company or in the engineering company, there's no black leader, black engineer, there's nobody black, you're going to miss. Uh, and you know, imagine the consequences uh, of that. Similarly, on smartphones, uh, cameras tended to be infrared activated, which led to you know, well-known issues with the difficulty that was a few years ago of uh, these cameras, these smart cameras to take uh, good pictures of black individuals. If you don't have any black engineers, again, or people on your team, you're simply 
uh, got a mess. And more broadly, back to this idea, right? If the community is on fire, you know, you cannot operate a business. So there's a business imperative to address diversity and inclusion, and not only in negative ways, in positive ways. We know from experience that diverse teams where everybody feels that they belong and that they can be the biggest, best, most beautiful version of themselves are more effective. And I believe, for example, that if it had been Lehman Brothers and Sisters as opposed to Lehman Brothers, it would not have been the catastrophe that, that, that we've seen. And to your point, Piumi, you know, it's one of the things I learned from, from Melody again. She told me, you cannot be who you cannot see. And so she highlighted the importance of making change visible at the top. And in many ways, you know, changing the top is actually easy, right? If you think about a board, that's 10 people. How hard can it be to recruit five amazing directors who are women? How hard can it be to recruit you know, two or three, let's say, uh, amazing directors who are people of color. Um, that's the easiest thing in the world, you know, if you really set your eyes to it. But we know also that what's the definition of madness, right? Doing the same thing and hoping for a different outcome. So we've learned a great deal in the last, you know, couple of years, I would say. We know that having diverse slates and diverse interview teams uh, leads to a more diverse outcome. Now, in the case of our board at Best Buy, we were very clear with the headhunters, Hedrick and Struggle. We told them, look, uh, don't bother giving us resumes of uh, uh, non-Black candidates uh, because we're at a stage where we want to really move the needle on that. And if you believe that you're going to be unable to identify you know, high-quality Black candidates for our board, We'll accept that. It's okay. We'll have no problem with that. Except we'll work with another firm. <laughs> and, and of course, they, you know, working together, we found three amazing Black uh, directors who've uh, added enormous value. And when I stepped down from the board uh, in June of 2020, we had a majority of women on the board and we had three Black uh, uh, directors. And so that can be done. I think it starts from not only realizing that this is a business matter, it also starts in the heart. I have to say that, uh, and I know that many leaders now have gone through this journey, right? Uh, for me, it was in 2016, I believe, when I realized that uh, the level of diversity, the level of engagement at Best Buy, while it was going up altogether, it was significant variation uh, across race and ethnicity. So, you know, I did what you know, a good leader would do, which is I did focus groups with, uh, you know, in particular, uh, Black uh, employees. And I got a punch in the stomach based on what I heard. I was shocked. You know, I did not grow up in this country. Um, grew up in France. Now, believe me, in France, there's racism plenty. Uh, but frankly, I had much to learn. And uh, what I learned about the experience of our uh, Black colleagues was devastating. And our diversity team was kind enough to then give me a mentor. And they call it a reverse mentor. I don't know that, you know, scratch the reverse, right? She was my mentor, Laura Gladney, amazing young mother, Black African-American woman from the Rondo community uh, here in the Twin Cities. And I learned so much from Laura. And so the combination of the brain and the heart and the guts 
gave me the, the, the gut level courage to say, that we, we have to change this. And I believe today that this generation has the ability, if we stay with it, to change the outcome and end systemic racism in corporate America. It has to be done. And I think we're on our way to do it, but we have to stay with it. Mm-hmm. You talked about it would be essentially stupid to only run a business with 25% of the population yet it still is happening on a fairly regular basis. And so I would like to believe that other people see it as um, important, but I think part of the challenge and the tension right now is that many don't. Well, they aspire, but they don't like there's, you know, you talk about continent dissonance in your book, the difference between sort of what they desire and what actually is happening. So What's, what's at play here? Yes. So I think, Shonda, that I'm not wrong in observing uh, a sea change in the last uh, couple of years, in particular following the murder of George Floyd. I think that uh, that's uh, what happened on that day, what we all saw, uh, was a game changer. And I, I see it. And that led so many... Uh, individuals and leaders to uh, deeply realize that, uh, you know, we we had something deeply flawed here. And a lot of leaders, you know, I give credit to Brian Cornell, for example, who eloquently tells the story, took the time to personally and deeply understand what's been going on. And now what's happening, I don't know every company in America, right? But I sit on a few boards and I'm involved on these issues. What you've seen is... uh, Big change. What do I mean by this? You have now companies setting quantitative targets that are time bound. And you have boards holding management teams accountable. And you have management teams genuinely now saying, no, we're going to fix this. And there's a wonderful thing in this uh, business world which is once we've decided that uh, we, something was a priority, was a business priority, we know how to solve these things, right? I mean, we're not, nobody's perfect in the business world, but once we've decided that, let's say we're gonna uh, attack the, the Chinese market or the, uh, you know, that we're div- gonna develop at Best Buy an online business, we, we know how to get this done. And in a sense, you know, once you've decided this in, in, uh, in a company, and I'm, I'm focusing on black diversity because I think we have to, to, to focus on, on that because it's been the most horrendous. It's a marketing problem. What do I mean by this? It's about how do you recruit, how do you uh, retain, and how do you develop black uh, employees, managers, and leaders? Well, that's a marketing problem because it's similar to attracting, retaining, and developing customers. And so... Once you uh, attack this as a marketing problem, you, you look at, am I targeting you know, the right pawns to uh, attract the, you know, the, the targets, individuals I'm trying to recruit? What are the friendship points? If I'm not retaining the employees, why is that? You analyze it so you, and you problem solve. And then you hold leaders accountable. And so increasingly at companies, uh, performance on the diversity dimension is part of the uh, assessment of leaders. It's part of the increasingly compensation of leaders. It's part of the business reviews. So um, I see a completely, really a material change in attitude on that front. 
And that doesn't mean we're done, we're not. That doesn't mean we can let go. But I, based on what I'm seeing, I, and I see, I see the progress year over year now at, at individual companies, if we stay with it, and that's a big thing to underscore, I think that we can make a, a huge difference. And, and the, the one thing I would highlight when I hear you know, conversations in the boardroom is that the competition for black talent is, is extraordinary now. Uh, and so that's a, good, that's a good sign. But it's not just about just competing for the existing talent. I also see initiatives, you know, focused on how do we grow the talent uh, and so on and so forth. So I, th- I see a material change, uh, China. Mm-hmm. Piyumi, do you, do you see the same sort of material change, the, the sea change, particularly following uh, George Floyd's murder? I think there is a sea change in terms of the desire and the intention. And so, so as, as you, Ube mentioned, I think we have to keep the pressure on the, and, and shareholder pressure in addition, right? And the customer demands, uh, you know, like both of you referred to hiring just from one fourth of the pool of candidates doesn't make sense. We as a nation form less than 5% of the global population. So even as a corporate strategy, when you know 95% or more of your potential customer base may or may not look like you and lives outside your borders, you need to begin to reflect, look, and sound both like your customers and clients by you know, retaining and attracting from diverse pools. So long-winded answer, Shonda, to say, you know, the, the change that we would absolutely like to see on this side of the fence, as it were, hasn't quite happened, but I think there has been a sea change in the sense of urgency and intentionality. I think we got this conceptually for now a couple of decades we understood the need for diversity and inclusion, but there was still not enough tension, as it were, to make this a business imperative. And now it is. And what is interesting to see is that, uh, you know, in the last two decades, we, we, we've had uh, shareholder activism. I think what's helpful to the cause now, in, in a way, is that we have stakeholder activism. Employees, uh, customers, community, shareholders are demanding more, right? And you see many examples at, at companies that are either either coming from their employees or their customers or the community or their shareholders being put under pressure, you know, if they don't behave on either these uh, societal issues, racial issues, environmental issues. And so as leaders, you know, com- companies have a choice. They can either be on the back foot or they can be on the front foot. And that doesn't mean that, you know, sometimes there's uh, excessive actions like, uh, you know, there's a debate these days about, uh, you know, the, the New York Times is writing about, you know, uh, should McKinsey and Company, for example, continue to serve high emission companies? And McKinsey's response is, well, if we, if we want to, uh, you know, lower the carbon emissions in the world, you know, we have to work where the carbon emissions are, right? So, so you cannot just abandon uh, ships. So sometimes there is some nuances, but this notion of stakeholder activism is absolutely real. And, and by the way, the next generation is, 
you know, is a different mix. Man, my good friend Manita from Manita's Table, when she does her gathering, she does this exercise, right, to the big room. She asks the members of a gathering to go to four corners of the room based on the generation they are from. So we'll have the boomers, the generation X, and then generation Y, and then Z, and A, and so forth. And then she, she says, look at the color diversity in the four corners of the room. Well, in my corner, which is the boomers, not that much. But in the Gen Z, oh my God, it's majority. And so, you know, it's inescapable. And that would be another uh, reason to believe that how stupid would it be to just recruit from one quarter of the population? It's one quarter on average, but if you look at the, the, the next generation, you know, it'd be stupid, stupid to the power of turf. And we do need a critical mass, right? Tokenism just doesn't do what we need to be done. Uh, desperately, just having one person or two doesn't add the power of a voice, right? The three of us are case in point. We've seen how our debates and discussions have changed significantly on the board that we serve together now that we have more than just one or two people of color, minorities. And so, you know, the famous saying, one is a token, two is a presence, three or more is a voice. And we need those voices, again, to ensure the success and continuity of business success. Because we bring in different experiences, whether it's in innovation, I mean, talk to some of the largest, most successful healthcare centers in this country, whether it is Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic or Johns Hopkins, you know, most of their departments, their top physicians come from all over the world. They're not recruiting from one homogeneous group. And there is a reason for it because that diversity enhances the delivery of whatever it is, whether it is a professional service or a widget that we are producing. And tell me, in, in your role, right, uh, leading a um, professional service firm or with a prominent law firms, you see a lot of companies, right, you, uh, by definition. If you had to uh, analyze what differentiates the, the, the companies that, you know, you serve, that you see, that are really leaning forward on, on, on the diversity and making great progress and uh, uh, achieving, what differentiates them from the laggards? Uh, and getting to, you know, what are some of the key leverage points? What, what have you observed? That, you know, we are able to deliver more effective customer-focused, or in our case, client-focused, uh, you know, solutions when we have a diverse group of people, seemingly similar because we are all, you know, lawyers and have gone through the same uh, rigmarole of, of, you know, years of law school training, but we bring our experiences and background, no matter how much we try to kind of say we are putting our lawyer hat on, you do bring your experience. And so how we even conceptualize, how we, you know, peel a problem apart and come at it when there are different, you know, mindsets at the at the table is so different. Mm -hmm. 
And, and so again, back to the tokenism, you know, gone are the days when you can have a token minority person for your pictures, you know, uh, just joining you and then never participating in, in, in the outcome, the long-term outcome, because you see the difference in the quality of the product. And when you can relate, when you, your lawyers, your legal teams can represent your client and your client's customer base, there is automatic, you know, trust built much faster. Yeah, and I imagine that companies and, and places that are really understanding the value of diversity are also retaining diverse leadership at a different rate than those that are hiring for diversity. I imagine that there is consistency, that there are uh, measurements, that there's expectations, as you um, shared out, Hubert, um, that are built into performance measures so that there's an alignment. And so you mentioned Melody Hobson. I had the opportunity to talk to John Rogers on this podcast. And so one of those measures for me would also be what he shared and what the University of Chicago is doing around moving from supplier diversity to business diversity. I think it's the alignment of decisions on where investments are made, who are you hiring for your business services, down to who's reflective in your boardroom and your leadership. And as Piyumi mentioned, it's the pyramid meeting itself. Um, and there's an intention at every level. And I, I, I see that as a difference maker. And you feel it when you walk into businesses that have this aligned commitment. Um, are there other measures and things that we should be looking at or aspiring to, um, Hubert, to really show the commitment? And, and as uh, Piyumi said, like organizations, businesses that are moving beyond tokenism, what does that look like from your perspective? Yeah, in terms of, of targets, what I see is companies um, setting uh, targets on themselves in terms of the, the mix of talent at the leadership level and setting targets to, to be achieved over time. Then, you know, to break it down, you have to look at uh, another a driver of this, which is diversity of slates and diversity of interview teams as a key driver of that uh, outcome. I love John Rogers' points because it's a, it's a, you know, it's about diversity. It's also about economic opportunity, and so business, you know, can be a force for good and uh, can make a difference in creating business opportunities for, you know, the, in particular the Black African community or or, or women, and so uh, companies that lean in on how they uh, manage their supplier base. And to John's point not just the janitorial services to be blunt, right? So, but uh, how, you know, Coca the Coca-Cola company had its uh, general counsel share with uh, the law firms that they were working with that, uh, you know, they had a, a target. Um, similarly, when I was at Best Buy I, at an event, I told, you know, the, the community of, uh, of marketing vendors that if uh, they were not evolving the diversity of their of their teams, potentially they could save on gasoline. They would no longer need to travel from you know Minneapolis to Richfield, <laughs> and so uh, again, companies can be a force for good. But it's a, again, it goes back to this idea: these are business problems, and we know how to solve business problems. Ube, if I uh, Shonda, if I may, I have a question for you. Where 
often, at least in the professional services space, something we come across is where larger clients will say, yes, we would like to hire diverse law firms, diverse vendors, but we don't have the scale needed in, in you know, diverse you know, vendors or, or, or professional services pools that we are looking at because they still tend to be smaller. How do you address that? For me, it is a catch-22, right? I mean, none of these larger firms, whether it is, you know, or in the, or in the you know, service industry, started out being giants or global behemoths. You know, they started somewhere, but someone <laughs> or many people had enough faith and trust or commitment to keep giving them enough work until they grow big enough. So how do you address that? So, you know, one of the things I've seen a CEO do was uh, sit down with the CEO of one of their large IT vendors and say, let's work together so that over time, you know, the teams that uh, this IT vendor was going to field at that company, we're going to be more diverse. Because it's one of these things where it's like uh, the carbon footprint. If, if I'm running a company and you ask me tomorrow, you need to be carbon neutral, I don't know how to do this. Uh, when I was at McKinsey, you know, we used to say it takes you know, 12 years to develop a partner, a senior partner. You, know, you just can't shrink it. It's like uh, the famous saying about if you take nine women, it still takes nine months you know, to, for a child to be, uh, to be born. And so I think it's the idea of sitting down between the, the, the company and its key vendors and uh, uh, really developing a plan on how to, uh, to do this, being clear about expectations um, and then looking at how firms react. I know that, uh, you know, I sit, uh, I've seen on boards uh, where it would be a professional firm pitching with a non-diverse team and you just tell them, look, we're not, we're not going to work with you if you have a non-diverse team. So that's working with large established uh, players. And then I think the, on the other side, you're talking also about how do we have smaller firms that are from the get-go you know, more diverse? I think the implication would be, let's um, so have this concept of putting the thumb on the scale. Right, again, because what's the definition of madness? doing the same thing and hoping for a different outcome. And maybe I'll, I'll tell a story about gender diversity, um, less really to suppliers, but more to you know, uh, succession planning and, and development. The, the, according to Sally Helgeson, who's written this great book, How Women Rise, um, according to her, her research, if a, if a boy is 80% ready for a promotion, most of us will say, oh, we got it, we're ready, right? And she's observed that if a woman is 125% ready for a promotion, most of the time, women will say, I've not finished what I was doing here. I'm not sure I'm ready. I'm not sure I want the limelight. So thanks, but no thanks. So if we take this at face value, we'll always go with the boy and not the highly qualified woman. And we'll miss on the opportunity to have a better team. And so uh, once you realize this, 
If it's true, then you have to have an exchange rate. If a boy is saying, I got it, that means most of the time it's gonna be 80% true. And if a woman is saying, ah, I'm not sure, then it's probably 125% ready. And so put the thumb on the scale, not take no for an answer, uh, and then work you know, on, on adjusting for that. So as leaders, we have the opportunity to make a difference, but it requires putting our thumb on the scale. That's a great point to bear. I mean, we see this at classroom level, right? Whether it is K through 12 or, or college and beyond, that the professor who actually calls out and draws out the quiet kid, whether it is a woman or a person of color who typically doesn't show their hand up, often is worth listening to when the professor draws them out, right? So it is, it is not one person, it's not simply telling the immigrant kid or the kid of color or the woman, hey, you need to learn to speak up and, and do better in class participation. It's a two-way street. The professor needs to step up too. It's such a great experience on exactly this point. So as you know, I'm, I'm teaching at Harvard Business School. And um, um, earlier this week, um, the students who has participated the least since the beginning, we had done a, uh, an exercise, a simulation on a uh, optimizing performance of a, uh, of a company based on the case study at Harvard. The most silent student produced a better answer on the case. And if you never ask, so you have to find a way. Now, you know, the world, there's this great book also called Quiet, right? That shows how the world is dominated by the extroverts. And so to your point, if we don't call on the introverts, we're gonna miss their point of view is oftentimes gonna be better than the extroverts. So again, it's putting our thumb on the scale. I appreciate you calling out us introverts. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And um, I think that what we're, we're talking about a, a couple of things in here, and I wanna just um, perhaps talk about something you said in the beginning, uh, Hubert, which is around your evolution as a leader, because all of, all of this has to be a commitment of a company that's expressed through the leader. And you uh, shared that you're a very different leader now than you were when you were at McKinsey. What changed? Oh, what changed? It's been a 30-year evolution. <laughs> One was, it was about 20 years ago. In many ways, I had been successful, right? I was at the top of my first mountain. I'd been a partner at McKinsey. I was on the executive team of a major multinational company called Vivendi Universal. I was successful, except I felt that it was empty. There was no meaning at the top of that first mountain. And that led me to step back, call it my midlife crisis, and reflect on you know, the meaning of my life. How, what meaning do I want to find in my life? What's the purpose of my, my life? How do I want to be remembered? At uh, HBS in the new CEO workshop we do with our good friend, Bill George, we ask the new CEOs to write their retirement speech. And my wife, Hortense Lejonti, who is this amazing executive leadership coach, one of the things she does with her client is she asks them to write down their eulogy. How do you want to be remembered? And believe me, whether it's the retirement speech or eulogy, people don't write, you know, I want to have 
made partner by the age of, uh, of 30. I want to have, you know, made so much money by the age of, no. I think at the heart of every one of us, there's a desire to do something good in the world. Even Das Vader in Star Wars, his son believes, you know, the force is still within him. And so it's about, about, it's about defining our purpose, what kind of a leader we want to be. Now, to Pumi's earlier points, there's a difference between desire and ability. So something that also helped me was when in 2009, I started to work with a coach. And if before that, you know, somebody had told me, uh, Mary or Jack are working with a coach. I would have said, what's wrong with them? Who needs a coach, right? <laughs> Why are we wasting companies' money to... Uh, uh, and uh, then you realize, I've done a, an extensive survey, exactly 100% of the top 100 tennis players in the world have a coach. 100% of the NFL teams have a coach. NBA, MLB, you name it. Why would it be that as leaders, we would not need a coach? Now, the challenge I had in part was uh, struggling to deal with feedback. And my coach, Marshall Goldsmith, the father of all executive coaches, helped me learn about feed forward. What do I want to get better at? It's not what I did last month. I, don't, I cannot change what I did last month, right? But based on the 360 feedback, I can decide what I want to get better at. And so when I joined Best Buy in 2012, three months after I joined, told my team, let's, let's agree that uh, this turnaround is going to be hard, right? So the reason why we know it's going to be hard is that everybody thinks we're going to die, right? So that's, I know, that's how you know it's going to be hard. And so that means that every one of us on the executive team are going to need to be the best leader we can be. And that includes me. So I have a coach. He's going to come in. He's going to ask for your views on what I'm doing well and things I can do better. I got that feedback. Marshall told me, here's the scoop. You don't need to do anything. There's no God that says, you know, you need to do this. But he told me, what would you like to get better at? And then I went back to the team and said, thank you for everything you shared with Marshall. On this basis, three things I've decided to work on. Number one, number two, number three. Right? And I'm going to follow up with each of you and ask you for advice on how I can get better at these things. And then I'm going to follow up in three or four months and ask you how I'm doing and, you know, if you have further uh, advice. And so that was transformative for me because who doesn't want to get better? And of course, you know, Marshall in that context helped me understand that the role of the leader is not to be a superhero. It's not to tell everybody else what to do. It's much more to create an environment where you can unleash you know, the potential of everybody. It's not about being perfect. There's an entire chapter in the heart of business, right? In my book around the quest for perfection is evil, right? <laughs> uh, and I think the model of leaders today is much more somebody who's authentic, who's vulnerable, who is humble, who has empathy, and realizes that uh, we don't know and we need help, right? Did any one of the two of you have the manual to deal with the pandemic back in March, 2020, right? You did not, right? Otherwise you would have shared it with the world. Same with back to the office. So we're in a world where on many of these issues is we don't know. And we have to figure it out as a team. Uh, and, and that's how we unleash human magic as opposed to the leader as the superhero. So that these were some aspects of my 
long journey to uh, evolve. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And and Piumi, I have some assumptions about how you maybe have changed over the course of your leadership, which I imagine includes you getting more bolder in the spaces as you have um, moved into your current role as partner. Can you share a little bit about your leadership transformation and perhaps even um, some of your best leadership advice you've received? Absolutely. And for me too, uh, similar to Ubea and you, Shonda, it's a journey, right? So my, I think my first pivotal moment came 25 years ago when I moved here, migrated here as a, you know, adult and found that I was in a place and a space that was really very different to where I had been born and raised for, for 30 years of my life. And suddenly being put outside your zone of comfort, you know, makes you grow in ways that at the moment you don't fully appreciate, but makes you realize that you've got to dig deep and find tools that you never thought you had. And so that was kind of one critical and pivotal moment for me. And then throughout the journey, you know, again, talking about, uh, you know, need for a critical mass in any space that we are trying to expand and open out. For me too, initially, it's the desire to blend in, right? Not rock the boat so that you get a sense of no matter how false it is, I belong. You know, you don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. And then increasingly finding communities of, of similar voices like you, like Uber, like our dear friend Val Jensen, who really kind of helped me, you know, find that courage really, for lack of a better term, that you've got to speak up. And that again, you know, if you are holding others accountable and pushing them against the difference between intention and implementation, you have to do it yourself as well. And, and so those have been my critical moments of learning. And, and again, you know, Jubia referred to it, the George Floyd event, which kind of precipitated the need for those of us who have believed in this work to step up and speak up. But that doesn't come easily. It's not an overnight process. And I look at some of my younger partners and colleagues who are in that journey. And you have to get, I think, to a certain place of feeling secure enough and confident enough to really push the envelope and advocate for more radical change. I like it. In the, in the book, Hubert, um, you talk about a data breach story in the book. It turned out not to be a breach, but it was the holiday season. You thought there was, you gathered them and you talked about sort of, or I felt like you shared sort of yourself talk as you entered into the room in terms of how you were going to go in there. And what you said was, I need to be a thermostat rather than a thermometer. And I really appreciated that. And I think that even in this last conversation, it's how we show up as leaders, knowing what to employ when and understanding the role in setting culture, building leadership, 
measuring what you want to be done and ultimately understanding that business is so much more. Business has a purpose that extends beyond the profits. I wonder if you could share what you meant by be a thermostat. Yes. So back to the question of the role of the leader, which is to create the right environment for others to be uh, successful. If I'm a thermometer, that means that uh, if things are not going well, oh my God, I'm going to be very cold. I'm going to maybe retrench. And if things are going well, I'm going to be very effusive and so forth. I just tend to amplify the movement. One of the things we have all realized, right, is that uh, we need to make a difference between what we can control and what we cannot control. And um, what we cannot control influences the environment, but then it's all about what we do. And so uh, if I'm a thermostat, it's the realization that, you know, what happens sort of independent of what I can do. And it's all about what I'm gonna do to help navigate uh, these waters. And so that means that, uh, and I learned this from, from my coach, Every day, I'm trying to you know, show up as a beat and positive, irrespective of the temperature outside, right? Because I know that when my role as a leader is to create the energy within the organization. Uh, and it's not that I want to be insensitive to what's happening, but it's all about what are we going to do? And how do we show up to deal with this matter, whether it's good, bad, or indifference? And as a public company CEO, is one of the things you... Notably, to, to illustrate your point, you try to avoid is overly react, react to what the share price is doing, right? And I learned that from my CFO, Sharon, uh, who uh, uh, we created uh, in, in 2012. She told everyone, because she had ample experience working in public companies, if the share price goes up, don't, go, don't be, be too excited because if it, it's going to go down at some point, right? it fluctuates. So if, when it goes down, then you're going to be very depressed. No, just focus on what you're doing, doing the right thing for the benefit of the company and all stakeholders. And then, you know, the share price, eh, it's going to go up, it's going to go down, uh, but don't overreact. And it's interesting, isn't it also, Ubia, especially for you from your vantage point, now teaching at a premier business school that is Harvard, to see how our own notions of leadership and what we value in leadership has changed over the decades. You know, 30 plus years ago, it was all about IQ, right? Then we said, no, EQ matters. And now we are at a point where vulnerability is a critical leadership trait and authenticity is as well. So the leader is not expected to be this hard charging, I know it all, let me tell you how to do. And some of the most effective leaders during points of crisis will show up and say, I don't know what, how we should react or what we should do or say, but let's figure it out together. So, so it, it is fascinating to see our own definitions also of leadership, same with physicians. At one point, I mean, Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, is an absolute seminal book on that. We thought of physicians as warriors. They were battling disease or death, and they had to make it right. And sometimes it is acknowledging the inevitability of death. And then how do you kind of 
you know, blanket the family and, and the patient with warmth and care and concern rather than let's battle this out with every procedure at our hands, right? So, so there is humility that is so necessary in being an authentic leader now. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about why you went to law school so many times. Yes. So as you know, I migrated here 25 years ago. And at the time, Shonda, I had gone to law school in my home country, Sri Lanka. I was a fully fledged lawyer, having worked for a little over five years at the time exclusively on international transactional law. And then while in my home country, I had also taken a sabbatical to go to Cambridge University in England, where I did my master's in law, again, focusing on corporate law. Due to family circumstances, specifically a terminal illness of my mother-in-law, we kind of moved here unexpectedly, as you know. And then when I came here, and, and again, family circumstances compelled us to stay longer, and that longer has turned into 25 years, so we never really intentionally decided to migrate. But at that point, I thought, you know, I could practice law and then found out in the United States, each state governs its own, um, has its own roles in terms of admission to the bar. And in Minnesota, which then happened to be one of the most restrictive, simply to be able to take the bar exam, I needed to have an American JD. So I couldn't even take a bar exam to get my license without an American JD, despite a law degree and a graduate law degree from Cambridge, England, Sri Lanka, and US are all three common law-based countries. So we had the same foundation, but I had to go back to law school all over again while working at a major Fortune 500 in town with a three-year-old at home and pregnant with twins. So I did law school in two years, but uh, um, you know that again, it is the power of family, friends, and community sometimes that keeps you going. Uh, I don't think I would have taken that journey on my own unless for the fact that I felt I couldn't let down all of those who thought I could do better. Yeah, and Piyumi, how many people do you think choose differently than going back to school when they come to this country? I think the greater majority. I can tell you from personal experience, I remember when I was at a different law firm and used a different parking ramp, the parking ramp attendant was a judge in his home country and didn't have the means to go back to law school when he was here. He had gone to law school. He was a practicing judge with way more years of experience than I ever had cumulatively at that point. And he was a parking garage attendant at a downtown Minneapolis parking lot. I've talked to checkout counter clerks at grocery stores who have been practicing lawyers. I remember distinctly once at a at a local hospital getting my blood drawn and the, and the technician who drew my blood was a surgeon who had practiced as a surgeon for seven years in her home country. 
before migrating. So the amount of talent that we don't fully leverage and tap into is, is just unbelievable. And again, it is about, you know, unleashing human magic, finding ways in which we leverage talent wherever it exists, right? And you think of, of I mean, forget the immigrant community, even, even domestically, whether in the African-American community or the Native American community, um, how many who are compelled to remain at home because access to childcare or, or elder care is not affordable. And then, you know, those who are kind of responsible to do provide the, the, the caregiving who choose not to engage in a vocation or profession or a trade that they might be amazingly skilled at. Or those who don't find the seed money to find that $5,000 you need to take your business to the next level or, or your idea to a business right. plan even. Yeah. And these are things that are barriers that there's actually solutions to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at some of the micro lending, I, I once had a client, she was the spouse of a client who had led one of the largest micro lending banks in her home country capitalized at a couple of million US dollars at the time, who was recognized both by the UN and EU for her incredible work in micro lending to women in third world countries. Shonda, she had, you know, there was something about her. She was sat silently. It was an immigration consultation that her husband came to meet me at. And there was something about her that once the consultation was done, I said, tell me a little bit about yourself. And she broke down asking if I could find her a bank teller or secretary job that she could not, that she was interviewing. And they would say she is overqualified, but nobody wanted to consider her for anything higher up. And, and I mean, imagine someone recognized who have who has addressed the UN and recognized by the UN and the EU for her expertise. I mean, in a climate like this, where we are reeling from the ramifications of the pandemic with women and people of color at the hardest hit levels, why don't we leverage talent like that? Mm. So, so it is just unbelievable how much we don't tap into. Yeah. It, it absolutely is. And, and speaking of, of talent and your move to the, to the U.S., which I'm glad you did for my very selfish reasons, your children are amazing. I've met two of them, but I feel like I know them through our conversations. And your son has contributed to a book that I see behind you on the shelf. Can you just share a little bit about, about, about them uh, quickly? And I'd love to just hear and, and hear a little bit more about this book, Preventable. Absolutely. So my son is a first-year medical student at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. It was a long journey for him to get to medical school, and uh, it was a lifelong dream. And what gives me most, uh, most hope and joy is he says, Mommy, 
I want to do real healing and primary care and open up a clinic in a place that one hasn't existed for 100 years. So he is not in this for the glamour of it. You know, medical school is anyway a long slog, but he is about how do we impact the most and, and that clinical, acknowledging that clinical medicine only impacts 10% of the healthcare outcomes in this country. 90% is public policy around racial justice, access to food, good water, you know, decent living, education and the like. And it was, I think, a gift of a lifetime for him to have the opportunity to be a research assistant for Andy Slavit, who wrote the book, Preventable, and, and, and to have contributed to, to that effort. And he has been an amazing mentor to our son, Nath. And, and again, you know, uh, it is leaders like Andy and Ubeer who are really impacting the next generation to focus more about what they can give. I think this generation is anyway has a propensity for that, but, uh, you know, gives me hope. I think hopefully this next generation will do better than our own. My twin daughters, once at uh, Barnard College in New York, hoping to go to law school. And, and she too uh, is a huge fan of uh Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and, and, and again, wants to focus on public interest litigation, again, representing those who need a voice and who have been not represented at all or underrepresented. And my other daughter, who's a senior at Trinity College in Connecticut, um, she started out in the art history space, which she is majoring in, but increasingly disillusioned by the very Western centric focus on that and the lack of, of you know, people of color and expertise and, and representation around, uh, you know, art is not simply a Western centric uh, notion for thousands of years, there were other countries and spaces and people who produced amazing works of art that we are yet to fully recognize and focus on. So she is majoring also in international studies, the African diaspora and peace and conflict specifically in Africa being a, being a major interest area for her. So feel very blessed that our kids somehow didn't focus on Wall Street and making the most uh, most money they can, but more kind of in the public service, how do I have impact? And, and hopefully, you know, for you and me as well, right? We leave wherever we have been uh, better than when we arrived. Mm -hmm. As we close, I wonder if um, you would be willing to share what you are most hopeful about at this time. Uh, for me, it is, this is the moment, if not now, when? I think we've understood the concept and doctrine for, for the value of diversity and inclusion. We've known about the business case for diversity and inclusion. If we go to nature, we know the, the value purely as a species to exist in terms of 
the need to cross pollinate, which is why we we you know make it illegal to marry your own own first cousin because diversity strengthens everything, whether it is biodiversity or in the business case. So I think hopefully in the next few years we will move beyond the theory and the understanding of the concept to actually making mass scale critical change needed. Give me that was beautiful. Two things make me hopeful. One is a, a, an increasingly widespread realization that what we have today is not working, right? And second, it's the, the heart and the soul of the next generation of leaders, whether it's the you know, 20 year olds, but also you know, the 30, 40, 50 year olds, there's a, um, there's a quality of leadership and a desire to create, as our good friend Richard Davis used to say, create a future that does not exist yet, but that can be better and needs to be better. And I think that if we work together, if we stay with this, you know, we hopefully will create a better outcome and we need to, because back to my granddaughters, you know, if we continue the same trajectory, they're gonna to talk to me, you know, in uh, 10, 15, 20 years and say, uh, they call me happy. How cool is that to be called? Happy? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, you know, what did you do? Were you asleep at the wheel? And I would like to have a better conversation with them. You've mentioned your book. I've read it. It, it was, um, it gave me uh, more gifts than I imagined that I would receive. And I know the proceeds of the book go to support the teen tech centers. And I've told you, I, I had the opportunity to bring a tech center from Best Buy to the Brian Coyle Center before I left Pillsbury United Communities as CEO and a Hope community where my sister leads has one. And I've seen them come up, um, very, very impactful. But can you share a little bit about um, the connection to the tech center with your book? Yeah, Shonda, thank you for asking. I'm, of course, very excited about you know, the book, The Heart of Business. Uh, in part, yes, because the proceeds, uh, my proceeds from the book go to help fund the Best Buy Team Tech Centers, which is a great initiative that uh, you know, was studied when I was CEO at Best Buy, which is focused on helping uh, disadvantaged teenagers in underserved communities have access to technology skills, which are so important, right, to today and the future, and hopefully a path to a job in higher education. And the funding for the teen tech centers has come from the Best Buy Foundation, some of Best Buy's partners, but increasingly also from individuals. And I'm very, very excited that that's one of my key priorities with my foundation, and the book proceeds to, uh, to help fund that. So, uh, we have 50 of these uh, teen tech centers across the country at this point on our way to 100. And I'm hoping that I'll contribute uh, personally uh, a few. The other thing that excites me about this book, The Heart of Business, right? It's a, it's a book that amplifies the idea that, yes, business can be a force for good. And that's the extreme pursuit of profit, you know, has been poisonous and that we can reinvent a view of business as a force for good in pursuit of a noble purpose, putting people at the center, embracing our stakeholders and treating profit as an outcome, not the ultimate goal. Now, this is something, right, Chanda and Piyomi, that most people now believe in. And the challenge for many of us is, is not whether that's the right direction, but what does it mean in practice? How do you move in that direction? 
And so it's a book that I've written uh, with a view to help those leaders, many leaders who are keen to move in that direction and need a bit of, of help. So it's really a handbook for these leaders full of not only ideas, but very practical advice and very concrete examples. So my desire is that the book gets into as many hands as possible and that it be a little bit helpful to uh, those leaders who are eager to lead from a place of, uh, of purpose and, and with humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the reflection questions at the end of the chapters are very helpful to allow you to just pause and take in what you've learned, but also to really think about what it means for you in your role. And leadership is so personal and we all bring gifts to the places and spaces that we're in if we so choose. Um, so thank you for, for that and the work that you're doing um, and, and just shaping uh, leadership and the future of where business could and should go. Piyumi, I'm wondering if there's anything that you didn't say. Do you want to announce when your book is coming out or? <laughs> Not quite yet, but, you know, I've read almost every book written on diversity and inclusion, but Ubia, yours is a game changer because you give concrete examples of having implemented these strategies and the outcome which was successful. I love the term unleashing human magic from your book. And that's really what this is all about. And that profit is an outcome, not the sole goal. Uh, Just a wonderful book. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, My chairman said he was so moved by it. He is um, making it required reading for our executive committee, but really a wonderful handbook for, for top leaders of corporations. Speaking for myself and our firm, again, you know, look to firms that are not out there brandishing their awards in diversity and inclusion, but who believe in this and who have walked the walk for decades. And, and, you know, borrowing from Upia's amazing suggestion during our conversation, getting into conversations with your vendors who are not as big and out there as to how you can co-create a, a, a pipeline that meets your diversity and inclusion goals, but also enables the kind of scale you need. So thank you both very much for this wonderful opportunity. Thank you. I love this conversation. I appreciate you both so much. And um, I look forward to interacting soon. Of course. I look forward to that. Shanda, Piyumi, thank you so much. Thank Thank you, you. Bear. And that's Piyumi Samaratanga, Hubert Jolie, and our host, Shanda Smith-Baker. The Heart of Business book can be found and purchased in your local and online stores. If you like this episode, have a suggestion or have questions to ask for our upcoming new guests, please visit Shonda on Instagram at Shonda S. Baker. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, John Coco, Darlin Benjamin, and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. This is Sue Pak Kienitz, and thanks for listening. <laughs>